Welcome, everybody, to Authors on the Air. I'm your host, Pam Stack. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Thank you so much for joining me today. I know you're not used to seeing me live. Here I am in living color, but it is because of my special guest that I wanted to do this. I had the opportunity to meet a New York Times bestselling author by the name of Michael Carita, who you see to my side. Michael looks like he's 20. I'm jealous. But he's got 16 bestseller books, and this is his new one called Never Far Away. Michael, welcome to Authors on the Air. You know, the last time we spoke was in March when you were down here my way. Yeah, we were down uh, down in Southwest Florida for what I consider now sort of the beginning of the end. It was, <laughs> the, it, end. It was the last large-scale event I did. It really, I mean, it was the last travel I did. I came back from Florida, and, you know, by then, obviously, the media energy had begun to ramp up, but right. it was when I was down there doing a few events that suddenly we were seeing hand sanitizer, you know, at, at restaurants and it had just yeah. begun to reach critical mass. And then I can't, I got back home and it, it was right into lockdown. And right. I remember thinking, you know, with my sage wisdom, this is real. People are underestimating this. And I bet it goes on for a couple months before we really get back to normal. So you can see how wise I really am. My my prediction only undershot it by about a year. A year. Well, um, when you were down here in Southwest Florida, did you enjoy the the Southwest Readers Fest? It's pretty cool. Wasn't it? That's a great festival, yeah. And I, I lived in St. Pete for um, okay. a of years, yeah. So I'm even. It wasn't a plug, but I've got my Kawa, my my trusty Kawa coffee mug. So there you go, there you yeah, go. Um, did you have a chance to go down on the river while you were here? Yeah, I spent a lot of time. Actually, it was the the weirdest sort of in retrospect poor timing. But I was listening to the audio book "The Dog Stars" by Peter Heller, mm -hmm. and I love Peter Heller. Fantastic writer, fantastic book. But that one takes place in the aftermath of a pandemic, and I had started it, you know, in the kind of earlier days. And then I was so hooked in the book that I couldn't, I didn't want to, you know, put it down, but it will forever be a very memorable audio yep. read or listen to me because it was just surreal. Yeah. It's, it's interesting the way things have come about. Uh, I miss going to conferences and seeing everyone, you know, the camaraderie that goes along with it. And for me, being a fangirl of all writers, no matter what you write, and most creative people anyway, um, it's been a kind of a withdrawal for me, not being able to see everyone. Um, but last year was a good time, I will say that. You know, when I was reading about you, I did not know that at one time you were a newspaper man and a private investigator. Which came first? You know, they actually, they, they sort of came together. I, my high school had an internship program that I just used and abused. And I, I got myself into the door of a PI's office that way, got into the newspaper that way. Um, I, I definitely stole some credits for just creative writing all through this program called Independent Study. And I turned the Independent Study into internships, which became part-time jobs, and then actually you know, became professional uh, career jobs. And they, they were, I mean, you talk about grist for the mill as a writer, I, I cannot imagine two better jobs than being a PI or being a reporter. It was, it was a great opportunity. Oh, I would imagine. I would imagine. So I want to go back, 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 even before high school. Who taught you your love of books? Where did that come from? 
my, I guess my parents, my family books were just omnipresent. Um, you know, we had, we had one TV, no cable. So I had my, my stable of shows, um, poor, poor screech powers is gone. You know, that was my, my TV limitation, but we books were all over the place. And when I was really young, my parents were you know, constantly reading to us. And then as I, as I got older, I, I feel like once you have that love of reading, don't you think you hang on to it? Yes. So I don't remember, I, I honestly have no memory of a life without books being a dominant part of my days. It's interesting uh, when you were saying that I was thinking back, my mom was the big reader in my family and she used to get those readers digest condensed books where it had like a whole bunch of the stories all at once. And I love to read so much that I'd be plucking them off the shelf, even though they really were not children's books or, you know, youngster books anyway, but I love words. So I had a big dictionary next to me and every time I'd find a word that I didn't know, I wanted to look it up. I, I was the kid who read the cereal box on the side, even though I had no idea what it was or the milk carton. Yeah. It was words. It held, it held some sort of potential to something. It really did. It really did. And when uh, I remember the first set of mysteries I started reading was an Agatha Christie. And that's when they remember that when books were on the spinning wheels or like 25 cents and everything, there was a, a bookstore close to where I lived that I would go into and grab the Agatha Christie. And then I realized, oh my gosh, she has like a lot of books. And so I kind of researched around. There's no internet then. I went in the library and found all her books in order and wrote them all down. And then I went and got books every day because the books are small. So and that's how she I- She was your mystery. She was, she, was, she was the one who shoveled it right into me. And boy, I latched on and never let go. And of course, since that time there are, I've discovered so many other wonderful genres. You know, we were talking before the show started. You said you liked horror quite a bit. Um, yes. Who are your favorite horror writers? You know, one of the, uh, my favorite books of last year was called The Only Good Indians by a writer named Stephen Graham Jones. I thought that was exceptional. Obviously, a big fan of Stephen King, Joe Hill. Um, is it a guy named Richard Chismar who I really like? You know, I can keep keep going down that. Once you start start me on a reading list, I'll just continue to run with it. Um, I just read it, it was published after he died, but a book called Little Sister Death by William Gay, who is an extraordinary writer, literary writer, but with a tremendous gothic influence. And he just he has that sort of Faulknerian voice where, you know, it seems to almost emanate from, you know, humid soil it's just wow that ability to take the reader into that place so that was his uh i get twilight to me is horror but little sister death definitely goes on that side too so i would recommend that do you read mysteries and thrillers and suspense also i i, I read everything i i read i mean you can't hand me a genre that i won't try and um sure i mean i'm probably 25 or 30 crime novel thrillers a year. Um, I read somewhere around 100 books a year, and I would say it's split pretty equally between fiction and nonfiction. Really? What kind of nonfiction do you like to read? Again, I'm, I'm kind of across the board. I mean, I do a lot of history. I feel like everything, everything you read in general, but particularly in nonfiction, has an opportunity to be deployed in a novel. And I'm trying to think off the top of my head, David Halberstam was someone who I, I just devoured his work. Um, 
of, of contemporary writers, I think David Grant is doing tremendous work in that he's, he's a historian and a journalist, but he also has, he has a grasp of narrative where it has that cinematic scope and intensity and structure. And that combination of the, you know, Robert Caro-esque research right. with propulsive plot, I just, I'm in awe of that. I would, Eric Larson can do a variety of the same things. Now he was there at the Southwest Readers. He Center. was, yes. I was at the longest line of any of the authors. I was so stunned. I, I was trying to get over to uh to connect with him at some point there. He's yeah, there. he he was I think he was there for so long, longer than he had ever anticipated, and then you know, took off afterward. He was exhausted. I mean, good for him. He sold a lot of books that day, I have a feeling. I, uh, I lost my voice at that event. I so I had I had a panel that I came in for at about one in the afternoon. Right. And then there was another one at maybe three. Mm -hmm. And the first one, we were into like the, the audience Q and A and I could feel it beginning to go then. And then by the second one, I had almost nothing at all in the tank. Oh no. And that was the, of all times to be rasping, it, you know, it, it was the pandemic was in the news enough that people were beginning to get a little edgy, you know. Right. So I felt awful. I, you know, people would come up in the, the signing lines, and I'm rasping, and everyone's stepping back. So it wasn't the ideal time, but I, I had fun. I don't think I don't keep those patients there. You know, that's always a great event for Southwest Florida. They used to hold it in the, the like the big um, conference center, a convention center. Oh, yeah. Since they moved it outside, it's so much more enjoyable. It's the best time of the year. They are doing a virtual event this year. So, yeah, they, they have to do what they can. Good authors, too. But I tell you, it's nothing like being in person. Yeah. And you're talking about Florida in, you know, February and March. I'm looking out my window directly behind the the screen here and the snow is just blowing in. So I, I wouldn't mind some palm trees right now. Well, there's a palm tree right outside my window and a lake. Um, there's a little breeze coming off the water. All right. It, I can close my eyes. and <laughs> it's, it's probably 80 degrees, which made me turn on the air conditioner. <laughs> you, now you're taunting. No, sorry. But, but don't forget we have summer. There's summer in Florida too. Yeah, I, I, and hurricanes. I don't miss the uh, St. Pete August. I won't. Yeah. That. Well, even BoucherCon there when we were in St. Pete was wicked. It was wicked and it rained and all. Yeah, so, yeah I know. Funny. Um, I want to ask you something. Every single one of your books are not necessarily connected, but you do write in this one genre. Okay. Love this book. I love this book. What I want to know is, as a writer, do you have a lot of ideas floating around in, in your head for stories? Like, do you have a, a like a tablet you write something on? Are you writing on scraps of paper or napkins, ideas for stories or characters? I, I don't really do that. I'm, I'm of the belief that if it's good, it sticks. So while I have those moments on a pretty steady basis of this might be a spark, this might be a spark, I try not to keep that sort of idea notebook because I feel like without hopefully sounding too mystical or woo about the, the whole process, I really do believe the subconscious guides the book and it certainly finds anything good. So if I have an idea that I think is excellent and I can forget about it, then it's an idea I, I shouldn't pursue. I don't want to pursue. When I know it's time to actually 
write a, a story is when usually it's been kicking around for quite a while and it it seems like the, the, either the characters or the the incident itself is becoming in, impatient interesting um so when you have an idea for a story do you start off with a character in your mind or do you have a story idea that you want to plug a character into it's gone both ways you know i would say one of the big triggers for me is actually place interesting i i find myself in some place like the west baden springs hotel which is this gorgeous and bizarre resort in the middle of nowhere in rural Indiana. And being down there, I began to think about, you know, like, okay, what's a story that would bridge past and present in this place? And I ended up with a ghost story that was so cold the river. I took a backpacking trip across the Beartooth Mountains in Montana and Wyoming. And I'm thinking about the both the beauty and the threat that the land around me was offering. And that becomes those who wish me dead. Um, live in Maine part of the year now, spend a lot of time up there and being around those coastal towns and seeing, it, there was a, a sign near um, a house that my wife and I rented actually for a while that said, it was a welcome to Thomaston and the date is established 1612. And I remember we were driving past that and the snow's howling in and I was thinking, okay, I'm originally from Bloomington, Indiana, which is not, no one would think of that as far west, right? But I go by signs in my hometown that say this old building was founded in 1820. The oldest building in the county was 1820. So I'm trying to imagine the idea of we're talking about two centuries preceding that. We have people in that little town in Maine dealing with the same weather. And so from that, I, I just develop a fascination of Place leads to character, leads to incident. Um, sometimes it will start with character, but, but usually place is big. Um, it sounds like you walk in your character's footsteps. You have that place in your mind, and so you can imagine where your characters are going. Yeah, I think you have to, even if you don't know the, the place that well. I'm a big fan of the, you know, the, the, the fish out of water narrative, the, the stranger in a strange land. So I, I don't think being intimately familiar with the place matters to me as much as understanding my character's perspective on the place. Um, I, so I have no problem writing an area that I don't know well, as long as I'm writing it from the point of view of a character who doesn't know it well. Where I think you would run into trouble or I would run into trouble is trying to fake that knowledge. You know, you're not gonna pass off. I, I can't go onto Pelicano's turf and write about DC. I right. could go on Pelicano's turf with, you know, some some kid from the Midwest, but you need to hold that. I need to hold that lens of being emotionally honest about the setting. I, I think the reader smells out those false notes so quickly. Interesting. Um, when you write, do you do, um, I don't know, note cards, outline of any sort, mm -hmm. or are you relying on your character to tell you the story? You know, I, I would say I'm relying on the character, but it's actually, it's a combination. It's both. I I don't have organized note cards. I'm not doing the color coded, you know, the, I would love to do the Laura Lippman outline where <laughs> you have this elaborate layered approach and, and that um, 
comfort that seems to be available with, with that level of understanding of your world. But I think the, the writer needs to understand what process allows the subconscious to get engaged at the highest level. And for me, that tends to be walking, you know, into the dark with my character. Now, once I'm into a book, you know, let's say first draft, I'm 200 pages in, then I begin to understand where I'm in trouble. And I, then I'll have a notebook of, it's not necessarily ideas, it's, it's almost more questions. Um, there's, or sort of, I think of them as, as signposts or mile markers along this road I'm, I'm sharing with the characters. And you, you begin to develop after you've done this long enough, I think you notice um, when you pass the, you know, the should have taken that exit, you, you notice that a little bit quicker. So I, I think keeping the notebook of the in progress um, manuscript, it, it allows me to identify where I might've made the wrong turn or I, or more likely just barreled right past something really good when I should have turned. Yeah, we have a comment from one of my friends that says, walking into the dark with my character. I love that. So, you know, that's uh, that's true. It is, it's a nice way to look at it. I want to wind back a little bit and go to your first book. What made you decide to sit down? Now, you obviously, being a journalist, gives you the who, what, why, why, how, and when. Um, being a private in investigator gives you some interesting character studies and story studies and so on. When did that come together? Where was the nexus that it came together and you said, I want to write a book? The Honestly, the, the PI work and the newspaper work came after knowing that I wanted to write a book. I, those oh. jobs were chosen. Uh, you know, I, I, loved, I loved the industries, but I, I knew that I wanted to write in this genre. And so when I, I sought out the internship with the PI, it was with the idea of, Hey, one, this should be pretty interesting. But two, I, I know this will help me write a book in this genre. Um, the newspaper background, it seemed like a lot of the writers I loved had worked in newspapers. Yes. So the the overriding goal of I want, you know, the dream was write books for a living. That's all I've wanted to do since I was, I mean, seven, eight, since I could read. Really? It's yeah. interesting. Um. So the PI work gave you some story ideas and maybe some character ideas. The, the journalism, doesn't it teach you to write succinctly? Versus oh, absolutely. I had, a lot of narrative, you know, that's extraneous really material when you go and look at it. You know, Elmore Leonard was really big about saying only write what people are interested in, which is kind of funny, but he, everything was so condensed. It was right. Just the story, the characters, and the dialogue, and that was it. There's Leave no out the parts the writer, the reader tends to skip. Right. That's right. Right. And yeah, journalism absolutely is. It's a huge help there. Um, for for me, I think the biggest. There were many elements of daily reporting that helped, but when you're writing on deadline, there are no excuses. You know, your your daily news editor is not going to say, "Oh, the muse wasn't." speaking to you today okay you know well then we don't need that community meeting to be covered i mean you don't you don't get a pass and i think that's one of the greatest challenges for for any writer any new writer it's the, just the discipline of you need to show up at the desk you need to honor the work you need to provide the time and i i really do think it's sort of a respect for the characters in the story 
you might not know exactly where it's going, but the the guarantee is if you if you don't show up, the characters won't. You know, to wait on it is is never productive, in my opinion. You need to be willing to write and throw it out and write and rewrite. And newspaper work is the ultimate teacher of deliver every day. Well, and, you know, just from a reader standpoint, um, I have to tell you that it's not fun to read something that you're waiting and waiting and waiting for something to happen, whether it's, you know, the physicality of the story or the dialogue in the story. All of that kind of is wasteful and it has nothing to do with the number of pages in a book. I, I Listen, I read Shogun, which was 1,200 pages and was riveted to it, you know. Lonesome uh, Dove, one of my favorite books, but yeah, long as that. The yeah. yeah. So, so I always, I always said, do you remember that you're writing to entertain? Is that uppermost in your mind that you are? I know that writers say they have to write, but is it, oh, are you conscious of that fact that you're writing because it's a form of entertainment for people? Not in first draft. That, that's a great question. I, I've never heard that one before. It's a great question. I don't think I am in first draft, but that's because um, I don't know where it's going, you know, so I, I'm, I'm sharing, I'm literally sharing a point of view with my character, which means that I only, I only know what I know. I only know what is behind me in the narrative. I don't see too far out ahead. And because of that, I think my ability to think about any level of the business of writing is, is really, I don't have the bandwidth for it. I'm too, I'm too concerned with the unknowns of the story. Um, that said, when I get to rewriting, that's when you need to become ruthless and to remember on a rewrite, the reader needs to be, I think the, the first thing in your mind. And I love, um, I love the line, I think it was William Zinzer said, hard writing makes easy reading, easy writing makes hard reading. And I always keep that one on my wall because it's the ultimate reminder of Hey, buddy, who, who are you thinking about right now? Are you thinking about yourself and how you're stressed out, had a tough day, whatever? Don't You, you don't want to, to really bring it here. You don't want to care about the granular work of the sentence. Or are you thinking about the reader and wondering how anchored they are to the narrative, how much they care? Have you equipped them with the right amount of backstory? Have, have you made them lean forward? I mean, that's a question I always like to ask to say, if, does the narrative have a good pulse? You know, are the vital signs good? If I feel like the, the reader is leaning forward and wants to know more, and if I have earned that with what has already come, then I'm in a good spot. If I could make the argument, looking at the manuscript, that the, the I'm relying on the reader's patience, two things. One, I'm in trouble. And also, I, I probably haven't been working hard enough about on what came before this. This is your 16th book, right? 16. Yes. 16th published book. It would be number 20 overall. Okay. You still have those four in the bottom shelf there? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> do, you ever, do you think you'll um, ever go back to those and look at them again and try to fix them up? Or are they just a lost cause? They were practice sessions. Yeah, I, I will. I don't intend to go back to them, but I don't consider them at all a lost cause either. They... Um, to make a you know bad analogy, but you I don't think anyone who wins a golf tournament considers the time spent on the driving range a lost cause. Right. You you get to one because you spent time with the other. And 
while I don't think they're great books and I don't think they're publishable and I don't have that desire to go back to them, I also, I think fondly of them because they are my, you know, good, good friends that helped me get to some, some nice opportunities. There you go. So well, I want you to think back when your first published book came out, what was the name? What was that title? Was, uh, Tonight I Said Goodbye was the first published book. Okay. How did you feel personally? Were you relieved it was out there? Were you excited? Were you scared? Were you all of those things? Yes. Yes. And yes. <laughs> well, that's the, the, the thing about the first book you will never get back is the, uh, or uh, speaking personally, I knew nothing about the business. I mean, I, I had not the faintest awareness of, of anything that would come with the, the business side of it. I, I hadn't been on a book tour. I'd never seen an author's event. Uh, so it, that was all new. And you, you know, you only get that once. And my memory of it is everything you just said. I, w I was relieved. I was so excited. I was terrified. Um, I felt both this sense of great accomplishment. that something I had worked really hard to achieve was done. And then also a sense of I'm a total fraud and I don't belong here. And I haven't put in the hard work. And, and that's the great neuros neuroses of the uh, experience. And then you get back out there with your second and third book. And while the writing of it is the exact same, I mean, the writing process from one to 16, it, it really does not change. The publishing process does. And one, one of the things I really try to do with, I mean, you, you've lifted the book up a few times now. And around, let's say, books eight through 10, I felt like I was beginning to maybe lose appreciation of just taking a moment to hold the book in my hands and see it become that, that physical thing. And um, ne never losing sight of that is, is important to me. It is a beautiful cover, by the way, it's and it's beautiful. a great story. Let's tell everybody a little bit about this story. I'm going to let you give it the elevator pitch. Take your time. Uh, I'm glad you said take your time because I have never learned the art of the elevator pitch. Well, this is a very high stop, you know, a skyscraper. You can take your time. Stop. You can take, okay, good. We've got a few stops along the way. There you go. Um, the book is it's the story of a woman who feels as if she has done the the hardest thing and made the greatest sacrifice she can make in life, which is to give up her children and her husband and leave them to protect them and move off into an entirely new life, new name. And in exchange for keeping herself alive and keeping them alive, you know, she, she's giving, giving them up forever. 10 years have passed and then tragedy forces a, a reunion but now her, her children don't know who she is. They think she's just a distant family member. Um, and essentially they, they think she's a woman who never cared about them because she's never been around. And it was that emotional terrain that really drew me into the story. Then the setting is for the most part, it plays out in the Allagash wilderness in Maine, which is a fascinating area to me. It's, it's obviously stunningly beautiful. But when you, you look at a map of Maine, you see I-95 kind of carving this line through the um, southeastern part of the state. And you see the population is all jammed in and a tiny area. And then you have these dense, endless, uh, hundreds of square miles of nothing. And I find it fascinating to look at that and consider how much rugged terrain has been you know, conquered, essentially. And we now have 
you know, we have cities in the Rocky Mountains and the Smokies and all of these areas that were once um, really forbidding wildernesses. And then uh, North, Northwestern Maine has, has kept people out for a long time. And I, I love the, the sort of mythology of that. So that's the character in the setting. And as, as I said, those are the, the things that usually lead me to the story. Well, let me tell you, um, some of our, our comments from our guests are um, from J.D. Allen herself, a quite a spectacular writer, said it's next yeah. to her, T her TBR list. Uh, Dean Lappy, who who said that he's the one who said walking into the dark with my character. He loves that. He said that books are the traveling souls we let into our lives. And Aaron, mm -hmm. our, our mutual friend, Aaron Mitchell, who said, so, or something truly weird like Florida, hashtag Cypress House. I'm, I'm, oh, yes, yes. I have gone into the, the deep, dark swamps before. Okay. And then... Um, I don't know how you can write in this genre and not dabble with Florida at some point. To. You absolutely have to. Just think if you lived in Miami, like Carl Hyacin and, and, and all those folks, you know, you wouldn't have to like go walking around. It just happens on a daily basis. I know? remember Dennis Lehane telling me a story about when he came down to FIU for school uh -huh. and he was coming from Boston and he thought... Boston had its share of amazing crime stories, right? Sure. But then when he arrived in Florida, one of the, or, or Miami, one of the first sensational crimes of that moment involved a murder where I, I think it was a domestic violence situation, but at any rate, someone had decapitated a woman and was bowling with her head. And he thought, okay, this is different than Boston crime. It has this added level of just bizarre insanity that we haven't really run into with, you know, Whitey Bulger. So I, I always thought of that story with Florida. Florida. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. Every Florida author I've ever had on, especially those who live in Miami, you know, like Paula Vine and, and uh, uh, Dennis Lehane and, and Jim Hall. Sure. Jim Hall, you know, Hal said, you don't have to really go far to find it. Elmore Leonard didn't have to go far to find anything. John D. McDonald didn't have to go far to find something interesting to write about. And most of it, they would say, you know, what's wrong? Where does this come out of your mind? And say, doesn't it comes from the Miami Herald, you know, or from, yeah. from the television? <laughs> so, it's, it's, it's the intersection of, yeah, Hannibal Lecter and Dave Barry, I guess. Yeah, really, Dave Barry, it really is. It's cute. Um, Michael, I'm so appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I stole a little bit more of your time than I told you I would. Oh, this is my pleasure. Thank you. Oh, I, I've really enjoyed talking to you, and I hope the next book you'll come back. But maybe you and Dennis Lehane would like to come on and have a conversation, or you and one of your other favorite writers would like to come on and have a I'll conversation. Try to, I'll try to lure the great uh, – there are so many people, but I, I feel like if you haven't had Alfair Burke on yet – Oh, uh, Alfair's a – We'll get Al Fair on if that's who you want to talk to. I, I was just thinking I can sandbag her with the most blackmail material. So that'll be good. That, that'll okay. Be good. Aaron, are you listening to that? Um, yes, we will absolutely make that arrangement. Um, and I want to thank you again for being with me. It, I really enjoyed our conversation. I hope it was a little bit different than the norm. It was fantastic. And uh, thank you for, for promoting um, not just my book. Thank you for promoting books. It's that's huge. And it was nice to see you there at the beginning of the end last year. Thank you. I know. And hopefully you'll come back when it's the beginning of the beginning again. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll, I'll be there. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. See y'all later.